Well, good morning, everyone. It's nice to see everybody uh, this morning. And um, could I just say, first of all, uh, a big thank you to uh, Phil and uh, Francis Anne for that um, for that reading. It really brought us, I think, into the uh, uh, some something of the experience of the very first hearers of Paul's letter to Philippi, because probably it would have been a congregation quite a lot smaller than this, but they would have been the first hearers of the letter because the letter would have been read to them. Most of the people probably would have been illiterate. Uh, Paul's letter would have been a big event. They'd have been sitting eagerly um, listening to what he had to say to them. So I think we got a wee bit of a flavour of that this morning. So thank you very, very much. And we'll look forward to chapters 3 and 4 being read to us in a couple of weeks' time. Maybe we could just pray for a moment. Lord, we thank you for your presence with us this morning. We thank you that your spirit is amongst us. We thank you for all that you want to do in our lives, and we want to open up our hearts to your spirit and your word just now. So we ask you to come amongst us and help us and speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul's letter to Philippi sparkles with joy, life-giving, heart-refreshing joy. So Marcus Brockmull's uh, recent commentary to, uh, on the, the letter to the Philippians opens. Here we have the Apostle Paul at his most appealing and winsome. It's a letter where we find faith in the face of suffering. Joy in the face of tremendous opposition. Deep theology about the person of Christ. A profoundly countercultural way of life lived by Paul and his readers. A fantastic display of Christian fellowship and a challenging call to Christian allegiance in the face of all of life's difficulties. It's a letter of joyful revolution. It's a letter that declares because of the death and resurrection of Jesus that everything has changed. Up is down. The old ways of doing things that depend on self-seeking, self-promotion, violence are passing. That suffering is not the last word. Rather, the reality of Christ's kingdom is, and therefore a deep and profound and world-challenging joy, is to be the experience of Christ's followers. Even when faced with the most difficult and the most lethal of dangers. That's Paul's letter to the Philippians. And that's what we have in store for us over the next few weeks as we read through the letter. Reading this letter can change your life. I wonder, do you believe that this morning? I believe that. Many of us here this morning will not be the same people by the end of September. So profound are the challenges, the truth, and the infectious joy of this letter. And I promise you this, right at the beginning of our studies, if you decide to engage seriously with this letter, if you decide to read it again and again, let it become part of you, to let God speak to you through it, to respond to his challenges, your life will be profoundly touched over these next few weeks. Because this is God's word. It's living. 
It's active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. And if we're open to his spirit, it will touch us. It will change us. I wonder if I could encourage you to do two things over the next few weeks. First of all, try and read the letter at least once a week. It'll probably take you about 20 minutes if you read it all in one go. So it's not a long letter. It's not a big piece of homework. But have a go at it. See if you can read it at least once and get yourself really into the text and really familiar with what's going on. That would be good. The second thing is, I just encourage you to bring a Bible or get your pew Bible out and have it on your lap as we, as we go through the studies and refer to the text and, um, and, and just uh, keep with us as we, as we go through the text. So those two things uh, I think would be useful for us. And as well as that, as, uh, as David said earlier on, we've got some resources on the Fitzroy website to help you get as much out of this as possible. So um, again, do use those. Now a little bit of background um, I think will be helpful for us as we start out on our studies in this letter. Paul wrote to the Philippians sometime around 60 to 63 AD. He was a prisoner in a Roman jail. Now we don't know exactly where he was imprisoned. Some people think Caesarea, some people think Ephesus. The balance of probability is probably Rome um, because he mentions the Praetorian Guard, he mentions Caesar's household in the letter. So it probably means he was a prisoner of Nero in Rome. So this is a wee bit after he wrote his letter to the Romans and is a result of his appeal to Caesar in Acts 25. So Paul's situation as he writes the letter is not what you'd call good. But he wanted to make contact with a group of people that were very dear to his heart. The little church of Philippi was one that Paul himself had founded. And you can read about that, as Karen said, in Acts chapter 16. You're probably familiar with the story. Paul and his fellow missionary Silas come to the city, and as was their practice, they went looking for the local Jewish community. For the very first Christian missionaries, this was the best place to start spreading the news about Jesus the Messiah. With people who believed in Israel's God and who might be receptive to what, after all, was a thoroughly Jewish story about Israel's God and work in the world through the Messiah. Now, usually the local synagogue not only catered for Jews, but also um, there quite often were Gentiles came to the synagogue because they were attracted to Judaism. So it was a good place to start for if you were a, a, a Christian missionary in the first century. In Philippi, however, there wasn't any synagogue, just what Luke calls a place of prayer uh, outside the city, and it's here that Paul and Silas start. There's a local trader, Lydia, and her household become Christ followers. And then Luke records for us Paul and Silas getting into serious trouble and ending up in jail. Here he is, Paul, he's in jail again. Uh, He's in jail because of an exorcism of a fortune-telling slave girl. And this culminates, of course, in the dramatic events one night in the Philippine jail, complete with an earthquake and the conversion of the pagan jailer and his family. And so the Gentile church in Philippi was born. Luke's story concludes with the Roman magistrates backing down once they hear that Paul is a Roman citizen and then Paul leaves the city and the fledgling church. Now the backdrop to this story 
is, as Karen mentioned earlier on, the fact that Philippi was a Roman colony. It had been taken over by the Romans and populated with veteran soldiers, displacing the local population. The official language was Latin. And by Paul's time, the city had really become a mini-Rome. It was complete with all the paraphernalia of the empire, the forum, the temples to the gods, Caesar worship, Roman magistrates, and so on and so forth. Everything around the Philippines proclaimed the glory of the empire, the values of peace and justice. The problem is that the reality of life for most people in Philippi was far from peace, justice, and prosperity. In Philippi, like all the cities of the empire, life wasn't really like our modern societies. In our modern Western societies, we typically have a small number of people who are well off, a smallish number of people who are in poverty, and a great mass of people in the middle who are in various degrees of all rightness. But it wasn't really like that in the first century. Typically had a small group of people at the very top who were the Roman leaders. Everybody else was struggling for survival. And it was a pretty difficult situation for most people. And we'll think more about that in a subsequent study. But the lives of these first believers who first heard Paul's letter all those years ago was really very precarious financially and in other ways. And when they owned allegiance to Christ and lived in a radically different way from their neighbours, it would have caused quite a bit of hardship and difficulty for them. They have been, they'd have been viewed by, with suspicion by their neighbours because they didn't fit in anymore. They didn't honour the local gods. They didn't honour the, the emperor. So for people who were already struggling, their newfound faith in Christ would have made life even more difficult for them. So it's no wonder that we find in this letter references to hardship and suffering because of opposition. Paul explicitly mentions it in 1, uh, 27 to 30, and then alludes to it in 2.17. So at the time of writing, both Paul and the Christians of Philippi were in some considerable difficulties, which makes it all the more surprising that we find that the letter sparkles with joy. How can people in such difficult circumstances find it in themselves to rejoice? How can people in such a dark place shine like stars? Again, that's a theme that we'll return to over the course of the next few weeks as we think more about the particular circumstances of Paul and the Philippines. But what we'll find is that the faith of both Paul and the believers, even though they're in such difficult circumstances, surmounts all the difficulties. And in fact, there's even power to rejoice in the midst of suffering. The Christian faith of both Paul and the Philippians demonstrates to us us a profoundly world-challenging faith, where trust in God and his goodness and what he's doing in the world can triumph over anything that life can throw at us. It's a defiant faith. It's so defiant that it can be content in all circumstances. It's so defiant it can be glad and smile in the face of danger. It can be patient in the most taxing of circumstances and be at peace when all around is in turmoil. Now, I don't know about you, but that is the sort of faith that I want. This truly is a joyful revolution. And the truth of it is that you and I are part of it. The Philippines read 
Paul's letter nearly 2,000 years ago, as we read it today, we too can be caught up in the infectious joy of it, the faith of it, and the revolutionary, world-changing power of it. Because it's the same faith, it's the same Lord that we worship. I'd like to think a little bit more just now about the idea of shining like stars, which Paul introduces for us in chapter 2 of the letter. If you've got your Bible, just turn to chapter 2 with me for a moment. And we'll read just a couple of verses there. Philippians 2, verse uh, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring or arguing, so that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. It is by your holding fast to the word of life that I can boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Shining like stars. That is God's calling for all of us. This year we were lucky enough to be on holiday in Italy. And we stayed right out in the countryside, miles away from anywhere. And each night, the sky was clear, and there was no light pollution anywhere, and you really could see the night sky. There were stars shining everywhere. Even on one occasion, there was a shooting star. It was absolutely fantastic, actually. And of course, that was the sort of sky that Paul would have seen night after night in the Mediterranean world that he lived in. And I think there's something immediately appealing about this imagery of shining stars. There's something wholesome and attractive about it, isn't there? And that's our calling in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, as Paul puts it. When Paul looked around his world, he saw, he saw the violence and grasping power of an empire that was entirely self-seeking and self-promoting. He saw godlessness, the worship of false gods, sexual license, drunkenness, greed, selfishness. That was his generation 2,000 years ago, and actually, really, not much has changed, has it? In the midst of this, as we look around and we see what is going on in our world, isn't there a yearning for something more? There's a tremendous hunger in all of us, young people and older people alike, for authenticity, for our lives somehow to have significance. Emu band Dashboard Confessional in their album A Mark, A Mission, A Brand, A Scar sing, is there anything worth looking for, worth loving for, worth lying for? Is there anything worth waiting for, worth living for, worth dying for? Is there anything worth living for, worth dying for? In the seeming absence of anything worthwhile, anything truly authentic, Our world looks up to and grasps for the stars, but actually, it's the false stardom of celebrity culture, isn't it? Anybody, no matter how untalented, can be a celebrity for a little while. Actually, it's the celebrity itself that is the thing, not the talent. Daniel Burstyn, the American historian, quipped that a celebrity is a person who is well-known for his well-knownness. 
Just get on TV, get on Big Brother, Britain's Next Top Model, Pop Idol, get on a quiz show, get your 15 minutes of fame. And if you can create enough celebrities, no matter how vacuous, no matter how meaningless it all is, somehow we can have a group of stars that we can look to, we can pick up the details of our lives and somehow pull ourselves out of the mediocrity of our own lives. As Van Morrison says, you've got to try with all your might to keep mediocrity at bay. Chuck Palahniuk, the author, says that we create this exaggeration of modern celebrity out of a need for drama and spectacle. Somehow, celebrity lives have become an escape for people who feel their own lives to be drab and meaningless, who have found nothing worth living for, worth dying for. There's nothing real, there's nothing authentic, there's nothing of any significance about any of this. And in the failure to find anything like that, we grasp at the fading glory of celebrity lives. But in the midst of all of this crookedness and perverseness, God calls us to genuine stardom, to shine brightly with a reality, a joy, an authenticity that is attractive. Drama, spectacle quickly fade, but God wants us to shine brightly, undiminished, fueled by his own everlasting light, the knowledge that he loves us completely and unconditionally. You see, when people see others who do stuff without grumbling or complaining or disputing, who see people who are prepared not only to look after their own interests, but also the interests of others, who will do nothing out of selfishness, you know, they recognize authenticity when they see it. As many of you know, Christine has been taking groups of young people to India for some years where they encounter both extreme poverty and Christians out there who are showing God's love in practical ways. And you know, it's this that touches the lives of young people, including some of those who come from no church background and actually who would run a mile from this this sort of service. When they see people unselfishly giving themselves to others out of a love for Christ, making a difference where it really counts, it shines out like stars in the night. It eclipses the falseness of celebrity culture with which people try to light up their lives. It touches their lives like nothing else. And that's what God calls us to. To shine like stars in his universe. To have lives marked by authenticity when all around us is false. Something real. Something tangible. How do we do that? Two things, Paul says. Firstly, he says, don't grumble or dispute. Grumbling and complaining is a sign of not trusting God. And how often we grumble and complain And in so doing, we demonstrate our unbelieving attitude, our lack of trust in God. We complain about our husbands. We complain about our wives. We complain about our jobs, the weather, the fact there's nothing on TV. We grumble about everything, the minutiae of life. The computer doesn't boot up fast enough. The traffic lights are against me. They don't sing the songs I like in church. 101 things every day just annoy us and we grumble and complain. It's time to stop complaining. It's time to trust God for the big things but also for the little things to rejoice and to do everything without grumbling. 
That's number one in the search for authenticity. Learning to trust God in every circumstance of life. And it starts with the small stuff. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Almost trivial. But actually it's at the very heart of our Christian faith because it's about trust and reliance on God. And it starts in the small things, the everyday things, and it expresses itself in a thankful, positive attitude that will have nothing to do with grumbling or complaining. Yes, it's simple, but if you're like me, that actually sounds very, very challenging. Number two in the search for authenticity. Hold fast to the word of life, says Paul. The word of life, the gospel of Jesus Christ that proclaims that Jesus is Lord, that he rules, that his alternative lifestyle of peace, unselfishness and love is going to change the world. Hold fast to that, says Paul. In the midst of crookedness and perversity, in the midst of violence, hatred, greed, uncertainty, mediocrity, hold fast to that. This word of life, that Jesus is alive, that he's in the world, he's transforming the world, he's at work in our lives. Hold fast to that, that God is in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. The good news of peace and justice has been let loose in the world and is at work in us. Hold fast to that. Let that word transform you. Let it motivate you. Let it inspire you to action to demonstrate the reality and the love of Jesus wherever you go. Now you say, that's all very well. That actually sounds grand, but shining like a star. That's not me. Nobody ever think I was a shining star. I don't have it in me. To be honest, I can't help getting upset when things don't go right. I'm a natural complainer. To be honest, I'd like to be different, but I know I'm selfish at heart. Listen to Paul, though. It's God who is at work within you to will and to work for his good pleasure. God wants each of us to be his shining stars. And it's possible because it is the God of the universe himself who is at work within us. And change and transformation can be a reality for each one of us. Because it's God who is at work within us. The question is simply, will we respond to him? In faith and trust for every circumstance of our lives, big or small, and in setting our hearts towards a way of life that's marked by unselfishness and by love. Because if we do, with God at work within us, we will be those shining stars. We will have lives of authenticity. We will be those that will attract others to what we have found in Christ. We will be those who show that indeed there is something worth loving for, worth living for, worth dying for. Starts in the small stuff of our everyday lives, trusting God, giving thanks no matter what the circumstances are, good or bad, and refusing to grumble or complain. And it moves on to allowing the word of life, the good news that Christ is alive and at work in the world, motivate us to love and serve others. Paul knew that his friends at Philippi were shining were shining stars like that in their worlds. 2,000 years on, God calls each of us this morning 
today, this week, also to shine like stars in his universe. Amen.